travellers and welcome to podcast 47 in our ever-increasing series, You Should Have Been There, with me, Simon Calder. And me, Mick Webb. Today's topic is long-distance walks. What are they? Where are they? What's the point of them? Well, many questions, and luckily we have someone with us to help answer them. Sarah Baxter, writer, traveller, walker, and author of the book, A History of the World in 500 Walks. Welcome to You Should Have Been There, Sarah. Um, maybe we can start with a definition. How long is a long walk, and uh, are they walks, or should we call them hikes, or even treks? Well, hello. Thank you very much uh, for having me. Um, I think that you can call them whatever you want. It's the feeling you get from the walk. It's the fact that you're not just going to the shops, you're not using your feet to go down and get six eggs. You're going out with the walk as the purpose. Very elegantly put, Sarah. But at what stage did you kind of open up to that kind of experience? Because um, certainly when I was younger and parents used to say, oh, we're going for a long walk, my heart would sink. Um, no joy in it at all. When, when did you discover the, the joys of hiking? I think I discovered it without discovering it. Um, I used to go on uh, nature outings with my granddad. I, I grew up in Norfolk mm. and uh, he would take me out on a Saturday afternoon and there was no question of calling it a walk. We were just going outside and we were moss picking and we were looking at rabbit burrows and we were going to the old mill that was down the lane around the corner and we were charging down hillsides and looking for conkers and things like that. And we'd be out for a few hours, but I didn't even think of it as a walk. I just thought about it as moving through the countryside and looking at what we were walking past. And obviously these weren't multi-day expeditions, but, you know, for, for a young child going out for a few hours, it was an exploration. But it was only later in life that I thought, oh, that's perhaps where it began. That's where the fascination began, by just going out and being used to exploring the countryside with my granddad and having fun. And then you've gone on to do much longer walks. And um, one thing that struck me is that, uh, well, looking at your book and also from... Um, my own experience of gradually discovering walks and realising that actually they could they could last quite a lot more than a day. And uh, how exciting if they lasted, um, well, months even. Uh, not that I've ever done that myself, <laughs> but there are, of course, now all over. Well, certainly the developed world, I think we can safely say, there are walks of extraordinary length. I mean, I looked up one, which I've walked a tiny bit of, which I thought was called the GR7, which went right across, sort of almost diagonally across Spain from um, Tarifa, which is certainly the southernmost part of Spain, right up to Andorra, which is a huge length. But then I found out that this was, in fact, part of a, a, a trail called the E4, a, a very Euro kind of thing, which goes all the way to Greece. And I mean, it's a most extraordinary length. I, I, I think it's um, uh, 10,000 miles or 10,000 kilometres. And, and it follows a fantastic journey, which actually um, uh, will take you um, basically along the Mediterranean coast of France, um, then through through Switzerland, through southern Germany, Austria, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Greece. And then, um, well, they say it ends in uh, Cyprus uh, and but I, I think you would have to do uh, a little bit of boat work there. But um, uh, it's just one of the many European long distance paths that I think, Sarah, most of us can just yearn to do because life doesn't um, unfortunately allow us to uh, uh, to invest that much time in, in a project of that nature. Um, I, I agree. And but just you talking about those trails, it makes my feet tingle. 
I, there, to me, there is nothing more tantalising than that trail that just goes on and on and on. I've, I've done some of the E4. I've walked to the other end. So I've walked on Crete. Ah. And just the, the idea to me that I'm covering 20, 30, 40 kilometres of something that stretches all the way back to the mm. south of Spain, I, there's nothing more thrilling. That you think, what, what's been... What's been discovered on that trail? What would I have found if I'd walked every inch? Who else has walked this trail? Who has walked this trail before it was a trail? Because so often these paths reuse paths that have been used for centuries. So all of the feet that have walked that trail before, I, I find it endlessly fascinating. And you could spend a lifetime covering these things. I'm sure that is is true, and we must get on to uh, some of the uh, the great uh, long distance trails that there are uh, around in a sec. Uh, I just want to ask Simon first of all. Um, Simon, are you beside the seaside? I thought I heard seagulls behind you there. Uh, well, there are most definitely gulls, but there are also London taxi drivers um, for uh, operational reasons. I think that's the usual transport excuse, isn't it? Um, I am uh, on the Midland Road between London Kings Cross and London. And St Pancras Station, uh, oh. as we record. But of course, some uh, great, great place to begin. Some some great hikes, not necessarily in the environ of London NW1, but uh, from here you can catch trains to Derbyshire um, for those, those great journeys across the Peak District. Or, of course, from King's Cross, you could uh, head up to uh, uh, to, to Inverness and um, enjoy Scotland. Um, but uh, that, if you hear any noises off, that is the reason. Or perhaps perhaps you could just uh, walk around the M25 or right across London along the Thames. So many possibilities. <laughs> ah, well, you're right. There is, a, there is in fact, uh, for uh, those of our listeners who live in the metropolis, um, uh, the Capital Ring, I think mm-hmm. it's called, which is a, uh, a path, and it is a long-distance footpath, which goes pretty well, well, it goes all the way around the capital, sort of inside the... M25 and uh, outside the North and South Circular through lots of uh, green bits of London. Although I don't think you'd want to put your tent up at night and then carry on the next morning. Um, well, although I have met somebody on this um, extraordinary uh, uh, circular trip around London who was using both the uh, Capital Ring and CampInMyGarden.com to exactly as it sounds. You know, you just you just find somebody who's who lives in in, in uh, somewhere well like Woolwich who's got a big enough garden for you to pitch your tent, and there you are. You've got a free holiday. But but Sarah, I think we. I think we're straying a little too metropolitan here. Um, uh, t- just tell us your favourite hike. For me, it's difficult to go beyond the southwest coast path, uh, the the trail in England that starts uh, in Minehead and Somerset um, and goes right round the uh, southwest coast of England. It, it's where I sort of broke my real trail boots, I think. It's the first time that I really did a multi-day hike for a long period of time carrying all of my own stuff on my back and I was blown away. Um, I had no idea that the water off our country could look like that. I had no idea that there could be so much variety. I was just walking along the sea. Surely it would be very similar every single day but just every single day brought something different. An interesting church, basking sharks, a different flavour of pasty. There was just so much variety in that one walk and I've never felt so free as I did just walking day after day after day and finding out what would come up next and always being wonderfully surprised. Ah, yes, I think that's that's interesting because... <clears throat> 
there are actually lots of uh, walks, aren't there, in, in within the UK, which are long distance walks. And I, I don't know why, but I tend to um, look abroad at uh, great trails, um, you know, through the United States or I don't know, across, well, we've talked about one across Europe um, uh, through, but France, for example, is absolutely awash with things called uh, Grand Randonnée, GRs. I've got a map here, which has, which uh, instead of having, uh, it's a map of France and instead of being um, crisscrossed by motorways, it's actually crisscrossed by uh, red paths. Well, they're more sort of squiggly than the motorways. And there are, there are, well, there are clearly more than 100. I think it's about 200 of these things, which are all long. Uh, they are multi-day things if you want to do them. They could take you weeks if you wanted to do the whole thing. Uh, and there are guides to all of them, and they are all uh, waymarked with uh, really usually in my experience very very good signs and signage uh, which means it's um, much easier to find your way on them than it is on uh, local footpaths when uh, someone has uh, knocked the footpath sign down or uh, the and the styles have all rotted and all that kind of thing uh, it's absolutely wonderful but we do have these things uh, in this country as well don't we we do. Uh, we do. You, there's all sorts of options, such as the Offers Dyke Path, of course, um, I think nearly 200 miles along the border of Wales and England. The West Highland Way, which is, I think, about 100 miles, but um, uh, quite daunting, particularly if the weather isn't with you. But, but Sarah, you're on the um, Southwest Coast Path, which I think covers something absurd, like 600 miles. Um, and weren't you finding that you had quite a lot of competition, quite a lot of congestion, because it is one of those emblematic walks, whereas if you just kind of make up your own, you're more likely to enjoy um, some wonderful solitude? I think that it depends on your timing. Um, If you were to go in peak high summer months, I suspect you would find more people in certain spots. But certainly my experience, which was walking in June, was that once you pass through Newquay, and Newquay would feel like a festival, you know, suddenly there would be tourists thronging the streets, people with buckets and spades, and you'd feel almost that you'd entered the centre of London. But a mile out the other side, and most of the people disappeared. It seemed to me that very few people were doing long journeys along the trail, which just meant that you had huge sections where you would see no one or virtually no one. And then when you do see someone, it's lovely. You have a chat, you swap trail stories. I remember advancing on uh, Land's End and meeting a man coming the other way, and he was planning to walk to John O'Groats. So <laughs> he was on he was on day one of his journey as uh, I, I was rounding the um, you know the westernmost or the you know the the end point or the furthest point of the trail. So you just meet these people and you exchange these stories, and I really found that it wasn't busy, um, and it was very, very easy to get away from the crowds, even somewhere as popular as Cornwall, because most people tend to stick to the honeypot destinations where there are cafes and toilets and beaches. But you go a bit further where it's perhaps harder to park or there are no facilities and there's nobody there. And the advantage to something like that, I mean, making up your own trail also is has its massive bonuses and can be fantastic and you can really get away from people. But if you're a little bit more nervous... Hiking a path that does have 
brilliant way marking does have facilities does have perhaps a luggage transfer service all of those kind of things it takes a little bit of the the pressure off you can you can relax a little bit particularly with the coast path because for a lot of the time you're just making sure you keep the sea to one side and then you keep going um and and if you're if you're just getting into long distance walking that's that's a real relief so i think there are things to be said about you know breaking new ground and going very wild but also, it's very easy to get away from people, even on the popular trails. I, I, I like that idea, actually, that uh, you've got the sea on one side. So, you know, uh, that if it's on the other side, then you've gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, this needs to be something we need to um, discuss, <laughs> given the number of times we've managed to get lost. Uh, yeah, and I think, I think the, the uh, path that we've been lost on more than any other, which is saying quite something, is the GR10. Uh, this is the, I would say, the... the, the, the flagship long distance hike in France. Um, it runs all the way across um, the, the length of the Pyrenees from the Atlantic to the Mediterranean. And um, we, we've, we've done this in, in many components over many years. But I particularly liked our, our, our first uh, trip in the year 2000, 20 years ago this summer. Um, and I liked the wow. start and I liked the end particularly because you got the thrill of anticipation as you, as you set off and the joy of completion without any of the the exhaustion the frustration terrible weather that um, sometimes intervene and um, we actually made a, a radio series about it um and how it connects the basques with the catalans and um, here's the start and the end this is an odd place for one of europe's finest mountain walks to begin i'm next to the casino on the seafront in the resort of Andai in the southwestern corner of france Still, there's a plaque to confirm it. This is where La Grande Randonnée 10, the GR10, begins its journey along the length of the Pyrenees. With the late afternoon sun at my back, I started to walk inland, following the painted red and white stripes that mark the course of the GR10. Closer to Madrid than Paris, that's the claim in the Banyuls tourist brochure. And at this end of the Pyrenees, there's a real sense of a shared culture that crosses the frontier, just as there was back in the Basque country, 500 miles away at the other end of the GR10. And what better way to end my trip than to celebrate Catalan culture with a glass of Banyuls and a sardana. But first, I've got a date with the Mediterranean. There we go. That is the um, emblematic uh, Catalan dance, the Sardana, um, which is danced in a circle and uh, involves about 20 people, uh, appears incredibly simple um, until you actually try to do it. And then you realise that uh, the... Um, often very um, old Catalan people who are dancing it with you are <laughs> significantly more supple and obviously much more rhythmic um, than uh, I was going to say we were, Simon, but I'll just say than I was anyway. And uh... Uh, yes, and, and I, not ideally not practised after um, you've, you've done a sort of you know, 20 or 30 kilometre hike 
um, you're not going to be in, in, in top shape. Good point. Yeah. Um, but but I'm intrigued. Um, there, there we are. Sarah, Sarah uh, has written the history of the world in 500 walks, and you've done a vast amount, um, telling us that you began in uh, in Norfolk, where I guess um, everywhere is a long way, but um, it's not too challenging in altitude. Um, I just wonder what what, what what your when you are on these great walks, um, do you, do you take a friend? Do you take some music? Uh, what do you do about um, uh, food, drink? Um, what, what, what's your your personal preference? I think the the best thing to take with you, certainly I feel, is somebody else who is really <laughs> good at map reading. <laughs> so my my partner, I'm lucky enough that he is a demon with a map and he also really enjoys doing that part of it, sort of, you know, making sure that we're going in the right direction, which sounds a little bit lazy on my part, I do confess. But what it really affords me, and I feel, you know, I'm very grateful to him for this, is it means I'm completely free when I'm walking. He's doing the hard graft at the front, making sure we're going the right way. And I'm noticing things. I'm looking at the birds in the trees and I'm looking at the spider's webs in the the bushes. And I'm noticing all the lumps and bumps in the ground. And I do, I do like to take the map occasionally. Um, but he does enjoy the map reading. <laughs> I will, I will state that. But it is, it's just so wonderfully freeing then because I feel I can completely be where I am. So he, I never he, listen to music. He sounds ideal. Um, can we borrow him? Um, <laughs> he, he's quite <laughs> you... useful <laughs> the, the only the only thing I would say to that is if you're going to do that to somebody if you're going to say okay you read the map you do not get to complain oh, if they get you lost yeah because you have taken no part in it so I can't have a go at him <laughs> if he gets us lost because you know if I've if I've done nothing myself did, then I did Sarah at the end of the day uh, over your can of baked beans or whatever do do you have to then tell him what it was he would have seen had he not been looking at the map <laughs> um he can normally tell what's going on when i sort of yelp in excitement because i spotted something in a tree or a fox jumping over a river or a bit of poo that looks interesting because <laughs> it might belong to a good animal um so we, we do get to share those moments as well. But it, I have to say, it's wonderfully relaxing with someone else doing most of the navigating. But I, it is also something I, I do want to improve myself as well. I mean, we, we, uh, we, we're quite capable of getting lost when there are good markings in Spain in our experience. I think it's fair to say, Mick, uh, the markings range from, from um, absent to misleading. Is that, is that fair? <laughs> there is one. I started to walk some of it. Um, I wasn't intending to do the whole thing because it goes from uh, Valencia on the uh, east coast to, uh, well, right across Spain to Lisbon, which is a very long way. I mean, I don't know, it's a good thousand odd kilometres. And uh, I tried to do a bit in the middle. It was called the GR10, funnily enough, but that's the Spanish uh, GR10. Um, but it had, uh, all the signs had been um, uh, sort of up graded to another GR which was called the 113 which did a slightly different route I can't tell you how um, lost how confused I got really Um, and it was through the gorges of the river Tajo which is the Tagus when it gets into Portugal it's absolutely it's near near a city a little big town called Cuenca Um, uh, it's Utterly stunning uh, countryside, uh, you know, sort of Grand Canyon kind of stuff. Um, but uh, I did try and find out what had happened. And it appeared that the uh, the local uh, or the 
regional footpath association had decided that the national footpath association uh, wasn't really doing its stuff so they just <laughs> made up their own bit of it and it was really quite confusing um are, are there are there particular countries that you've found where the way marking is especially good are there are there countries i mean can you actually generalize i wonder sarah by saying yeah france good spain good um germany adequate what what what's what's your kind of uh league table for the for the uh uh, simply the, the, the mechanics of it or are you just uh, enjoying looking at the birds the trees the clouds um, while your partner is is manfully uh, finding the way so you don't frankly care um i think uh i hate to be stereotypical but you know you can't really beat the swiss for a good trail marking i mean to, to the point of ridiculousness you'll get a sign and it'll say such and such lake five minutes and then you'll walk for two and a half minutes and it'll say such and such lake, two and a half minutes. The, the, the level of detail of some of their signage is almost absurd. You, you almost want fewer signs because you think, well, yeah. give me something to work with. <laughs> give me some possible chance of taking a detour or getting slightly lost. Uh, that's a little bit petty. Obviously, it's wonderful to have such um, uh, a, fantastic, <laughs> a fantastic sign network. You do. I mean, there are many places where you're merrily, merrily following signs and then suddenly they'll just stop. Or you'll get to yeah. a junction, you know, a, a straight piece of trail has been very well signed and you'll get to a junction and there's no there's no sign. You think, well, this is where I need it. This is where I need somebody to tell yeah. me where to go. Um, but it is also getting used to reading how the the country sort of likes to put its signs. So knowing where you're likely to find them, you know, looking in the right places, making sure, well, it's probably, if there's going to be one, it's probably going to be on that rock over there, or it's going to be a bit further <laughs> down there. There, there are, I think there are nuances, um, but it does tend to be, you know, countries sort of Switzerland, Austria, Germany, I would say, my experience, the trails have been very well signed. As you say, Spain, perhaps a little less so. Greece, a little less so. I, I'm very keen to to tackle at least some of the um, uh, the Sentiero Italia, which is this extraordinary S-shaped hike, which starts in Trieste. And if you can imagine tracing an S around from there, so it goes right across uh, through uh, just on the Swiss border through to France uh, and, and then uh, swings back, goes comes straight down along the Apennines in the heart of Italy. And then there's this sort of little curl, the rest of the S, going round to um, Sicily. And then, would you believe, it even hops across to Sardinia. So I'm looking forward to doing a bit of that. But um, um, Sarah, Mick, you, we're all kind of talking from um, years of experience about people who are listening who perhaps haven't done long distance hiking. I mean, that there may be, they may be feeling some obstacles. Like how fit do you think you need to be, Sarah? And, and, and how do you choose a good sort of entry level hike? I think the first thing you need to do is work out if you actually like hiking. You know, a lot of, a lot of people have, um, have got into walking perhaps a bit more during lockdown. You know, we've all been a bit more stuck in our homes. So people have gone out from their doorsteps. It's been sort of well reported that that has been happening a lot more. So maybe those people will think, great, maybe now I'm inspired to take a walking holiday for my next trip, which is brilliant. And I would love to see that happen. But I think what you need to do is you need to hike back to back days. Because it's quite easy, uh, relatively easy, to go out for, say, a 10-mile walk, even a 13-, 14-mile walk. You can get yourself prepared to do that. You know, you can get the right food, even if you're not super fit. If you're not choosing a very hard, stiff gradient trail, you can probably do that. 
But can you wake up the next morning, put your boots on again and do it again and then do it again and then do it again? And I think that's where people sometimes fall down. They're fit enough to do one day hike, but are they fit enough or even do they want to do it again the next day? Do you think that in a way you need to, as with many um good things go through a bit of a um, a pain barrier, uh, as it were. I don't mean blisters and things, although they can um, be a bit of a pain sometimes. But the fact that you really, even if you love doing long distance walks, which I do, as soon as you haven't done one for quite a long time, the first day is brilliant. And then the second day is, oh, God, I can hardly move and then the third day isn't sometimes wonderful but there comes a point reasonably soon but you do need to have put aside a week to get this kind of effect when actually you can't wait to um, get your boots on and um, get out on the trail now sarah could we possibly ask you to take part in our we should have been there questionnaire, um, perhaps starting with your favourite destination. I think that would probably have to be Nepal. Um, there are a few places that can compete in terms of uh, sheer immensity of scenery, wonderfully warm people. And what, what I really love about it is the fact that the, the culture and the mountains are so linked. So when you're, when you're hiking there, you're, you are hiking in the wilderness and you have these fantastic views, but you're always coming across um, villages and tea houses and, and people and yak herders. And for me, I, I, I prefer that kind of hiking. I, I'm not really into the idea of huge journeys where you're very unlikely to see anyone. You know, it's just the wilderness. I, I like the human aspect to it as well, the, the temples and the prayer flags that you come across. To me, that adds to the landscape. Next question then, what's your favourite souvenir? Yeah, I was wondering about that. Our shelves are dotted with all manner of bits and bobs, but I think it's probably um, a small pendant that I picked up doing part of the Camino de Santiago. And it's a little metal pilgrim, or rather two metal pilgrims. One has been carved out of the other. And I bought it from a man called Manolo uh, in a bar (laughs) in Spain. He's been making them for decades, he told me. And they're they come apart so you can give one to somebody else and one is the outside of the pilgrim and one is the inside of the pilgrim and he's been selling these to pilgrims passing by um as i say for for decades and my partner now has one and i have one what a nice idea i hope i hope he's still making them now moving away from nice ideas what's the strangest brew that you've ever drunk to <laughs> um travel does tend to throw up a few a few weird ones i think I mean, I don't know if it's totally the strangest, but when I was in Gdansk in Poland, um, they have a liqueur there called Goldwasser. And it's a, it's a strong <laughs> herbal liqueur, but it has flakes of gold floating in it. And the idea to me that you would drink gold seemed particularly unusual. And it was sort of emphasised by the fact that I was there on assignment to see if I could uh, have a great weekend break for under £100. And I could, even by having a shot of Goldwasser, So the idea that I was on this super budget break, but I was actually drinking gold seemed uh, seemed perfectly appropriate. To go with the strangest brew, what's the best meal you've ever had abroad? With my best meal, I wonder if you might have even had it yourselves. Um, I was staying in Le Scun on the the GR10 and uh, in the morning um, we went down to the cafe and bought a couple of croissants uh, from the bakery there. And we left and we realised that we'd been 
massively overcharged for these croissants and it put me in a really bad mood. I had no idea why it put me in such a bad mood, but I, I was really cross and I set out from this walk and into the, into the mountains feeling really, really cross. But as we got further into the mountains, uh, we came across this hut and there was a shepherd in this hut and you could knock on the door and inside he just had these huge rounds of his mountain cheese and you could go up to him and give him some money and he would give you a lump of cheese and he gave me this lump of cheese and I sat outside and I had a hunk of local bread as well and I ate that cheese with that bread underneath those mountains and everything else melted away. To me, the best meals are always bread and cheese in the mountains. Fantastic. What's the first thing you pack uh, when you're um, off on a long walk? Uh, very, very tedious, um, but I would always pack a notebook and pen. You know, whether I'm going for work, whether I'm going for fun, I, I like to have a notebook and pen with me. Um, I would also always pack a merino t-shirt. I think merino is the, the again, a magical fabric. Um, I've worn the same merino t-shirt for five days walking in a hot Spanish summer, and I don't think I smell at the end of it. Maybe other people disagreed, but uh, they are they are wonderful for those times when you're doing a lot of walking without uh, any use for washing machine. Oh, well, thank you so much, Sarah. I'm afraid we're going to um, have to bring things to a conclusion now. Uh, next week's podcast is going to be about the best travel film. So um, plenty of uh, scope for discussion, I'd say. Proper armchair travelling, you can put your feet up. But meanwhile, Sarah Baxter, uh, writer, traveller, walker, author of A History of the World in 500 Walks. Thank you so much for being entertaining and inspirational. And for now, from me, Simon Calder. And from me, Mick Webb. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for having me. Goodbye. Goodbye.